you would, uh, turn with me one final time in the year 2023 to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. Uh, Next week we will take a break from this book that we have been walking through uh, throughout this year to turn our attention to the book of Ruth, and so we're going to take some time over the next several weeks to do a sermon series through the book of Ruth, and then at the end of the year uh, when Christmas draws nearer. We're going to do a uh, series on Advent, and so we will not come back to Genesis again until uh, the year 2024, if the Lord allows it. Uh, And so one final time here in this year, we come to this book, the 25th chapter, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses together this morning. Uh, we, We come here in these verses to the death of Abraham. The, the story of Genesis that we have seen all the way back since chapter 11 has been the story of Abraham. We're there at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis. We're introduced to this one named Abram, who is the son of Terah. And right away in chapter 12, God tells Abraham to leave his country, his people, and his father's household and go to the land in which he will show him, the land of Canaan. And, and with that, God brings a promise. That he will make him into a great nation, that he will bless him and make his name great, and that he will be a blessing. He says that I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so from the very beginning of the story, we see this promise to Abraham that a nation, a chosen people will come from him through which the seed of promise, the Messiah, will come. But there's not only this one particular nation that the blessing will come through, but this blessing will reach to all of the nations and tribes of the world. And so the rest of the story of Genesis, or the story of Abraham, is, is about this covenant promise that God has made to this one particular man named Abram. And throughout the story, we see many threats to this promise of a son who is to come. We see the threat of of sojourning in Egypt and his wife Sarah is taken into the house of Pharaoh. Uh, We see the the threat of the division of land and and foreign kings coming in to take the land and, and Abraham having to rescue his nephew Lot from the hands of these kings. We see the covenant established with Abraham where God says that this covenant that I make with you and to the generations that will come after you, I establish by myself. And we see the inauguration of of circumcision and the importance of that. We see the threat of Ishmael and his birth. We see threats of, uh, of Abraham and his operating out of fear instead of operating out of faith. Finally, we see the birth of Isaac foretold and more details are given to us until eventually the son of promise is born and he arrives on the scene. And then right away in chapter 22, God tests Abraham and tells him to go and sacrifice this son of promise. Abraham, by faith, passes the test. We then see the threat of the death of his wife. We see the threat last week in chapter 24 of his son Isaac returning to his homeland and not residing in the promised land. And in the midst of all of this, in the faithfulness and also the unfaithfulness of Abraham, we see this one constant throughout the story of Abraham. And that is that God is faithful. 
His steadfast love surely rests on Abraham, and it will rest on all of God's people throughout all of eternity. And so we come to chapter 25 this morning, and we see once again, as we've seen over the last several weeks, as Abraham comes to the end of his life, he has a perspective that is in the future. He is thinking about the generations to come. He realizes that all of the promises will not be fulfilled in his day. And so we've seen him go to great lengths to make sure that the generations to come are resting in the promises of God. And so as we look at these 11 verses this morning, we will see that the people of God throughout human history have a mandate from God to impart and entrust the promises of God to the coming generations. This is something that would have been very familiar to the nation of Israel. If you'd turn with me just for a moment to Deuteronomy 6, hold your place there in Genesis 25. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God makes it abundantly clear that the expectation of obedience on the people and the truth of who God is as their covenant God is to be imparted to the generations to come. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So this is Moses speaking to the people after they've come out of Egypt. They're hoping to enter into the promised land soon. He goes on to say that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." God comes to his covenant people and he says, I am the one true living creator, sovereign God of the universe, Yahweh, and I am your God. And you shall love me with all of your heart and soul and might. And then he says, this great truth and this great application for you as my covenant people, you are to teach diligently to your children. It goes on there in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with a great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. We come back to Genesis 25, and we see here Abraham, who does not have this command, who does not have the law of God, 
acting with this type of perspective, resting in the nature of God, trusting that his promises are sure for the generations to come. So we've seen Abraham believe in the promise of God, and we've seen his obedience displayed in his actions. And at the end of his days, he wants to assure that the coming generations will do the same. That they will trust in the promises of God, and they will walk in obedience to him all of their days. And so before we read these 11 verses, I want you to Pay attention to a couple things. First, I want you to see how here at the end of Abraham's life, God continues to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham throughout the story. But then secondly, and and probably most importantly, I want you to notice the emphasis on this, that the covenant promise now will rest on Isaac. So we begin this morning in verse 1 of Genesis 25, and it says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Litushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Ber Lahai Roy. In these first six verses in particular, we see that we must be intentional to impart the promises of God to the coming generations. Abraham once again does what he can to protect the promise here at the end of his life. And so we saw him burying Sarah, his wife, in the land of Canaan. We saw him last week sending his servant back to his homeland and making sure Isaac stayed behind to ensure that Isaac would reside there in the land of promise. And here once again, in his final act, we see him protecting the promise that God has entrusted to him. We are told here in verse 1 that Abraham took another wife, and her name is Keturah. Now, at this point, we need to mention something here that's somewhat important to us. There's some debate among scholars and theologians as to when Abraham married Keturah. And so there are some who believe that Abraham married Keturah while uh, he was still married to Sarah. Uh, There are some who believe that he married her after Sarah died. Really what's important here, though, is is to understand this, and this is why I share this. When we read the, the story of the Bible, when we read the narrative of Scripture, we need to understand that the things that unfold in order, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, are not always happening chronologically in the order of events that they actually happened. And so one example of that I mentioned last week, some commentators believe that in Genesis chapter 24, there at the end, that Abraham has already died. 
And yet here we come to chapter 25, and, and clearly Abraham is still alive. Now full transparency, I don't believe that Abraham is, has died at the end of chapter 24. I think he dies after Esau and Jacob are born. But that's beside the point. What is important here? Not so much when he married Keturah, although I do believe that he married her while Sarah was still alive because she's referred to as his concubine, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But what we see here is this beautiful masterpiece in this literature, the word of God. As the writer writes this information, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he purposefully places it here so as to not distract from the story that has been unfolding already from chapter 12 here to chapter 25. In other words, the writer waits to tell us this until the very end because of the importance that it plays here at the end of Abraham's life. And so the nation of Israel, when they're reading the Old Testament, will know full well that Abraham had another wife named Keturah, and they would have known full well who the sons were that came from her. And so the, the writer here has a responsibility to the people of God to present this information, and he does so to make this point very clear that the promise and the fulfillment of the promise rest on Isaac. So we see here from Keturah, several sons are named there. You see there in verse 2, there are six names given. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see sons that come from them. Uh, there's really not much significance to these names. Most of these names we only see mentioned one other time in Scripture. Some of them we, don't, we only see them mentioned here this once. One name in particular might sound familiar to you. That's Midian, where we, we come to see the, the, the Midianites, who are a, a, a people that dwell in the wilderness around Israel. And, and we see them mentioned a lot before the, the monarchy of Israel is established with Saul and David. And if you know the story of Moses, when Moses flees Egypt and he goes into the wilderness, he marries a Midianite woman. But what's most significant about these names is the fulfillment of the promise that God made back in chapter 17 that Abraham would be the father of nations. This would be very clear to the original audience that they read this, that Abraham wasn't just the father of Isaac and Ishmael, but he is most certainly, as his name says he is, the father of nations. But the key verse to the first six verses is there in verse 5 where it says Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. It would have been the common practice to give a fixed share or a fixed portion of the father's wealth, the inheritance to the sons of the fool wife. Because we see there in verse 6 then that he did something different with the sons of his concubines. Verse 6, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts. You need to pause here for just a moment and understand what a concubine is and why that is important to the story here. Uh, I've written down a couple of definitions that I took from uh, Bible dictionaries about what a concubine is. One of them said it is a female in a formal, societally recognized marriage relationship with a husband, but usually with less rights than the first wife. Another dictionary said this, the concubine was a true wife, though a of secondary rank. The institution itself is an offshoot of polygamy. A number of men in the Old Testament had concubines, either one or many, as a sign of wealth and status of symbols. And so uh, we, we think of Hagar earlier in the story, who went from slave girl to 
wife of Abraham in a moment, and then she's downgraded again to slave later in the story, but she would have been a concubine. But also in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, in giving Abraham's descendants, there the writer says of the sons of Keturah, this wife of Abraham, that she is Abraham's concubine. And so there in verse 6, I think it's fair to us to say, for us to say when he says the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave, gave gifts, he has in mind the sons of Keturah. So the point here, again, is that Isaac is the true heir. The covenant rests on Isaac. So we go back to chapter 21. At the birth of Isaac, and Ishmael laughs at Isaac, and Abraham finds himself in this strange position of, what do I do with these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac? And God gives him a solution to the problem, and he says, send away the slave woman with her child cast her out God told him to do why to protect Isaac the the son of promise clearly showing that the covenant the promise rests on Isaac and we see that here again the emphasis of that notice what Abraham does there in verse 6 it says here uh, but to the sons of his concubine Abraham gave gifts Abraham is not passive here. He is a man of God, and we see him taking care of all of his sons, even the ones that are born of concubines. We saw that again with Ishmael. When he casts them out, he sends them away with food and water. But then notice what verse 6 says. It says, And while he was still living, he sent them away from who? His son, Isaac. He's protecting the one, the son of promise, in which the covenant would rest upon. And so at this point in the story, it's important for us to understand this. In God's plan of redemption, the story of salvation that is happening before our eyes here in the book of Genesis and still continues in our day as the church as we seek to advance the kingdom of God in this world and to to advance the church and and Christ's reign in this world, we, we come to understand that this plan of redemption ultimately does not rest on us. Christ will build his church. Christ will sanctify his people. But we know, according to God's word, that God uses people to bring about his kingdom in this world. He uses dysfunctional, broken people like Abraham, like you, like me, to advance the cause of Christ in this world. We are to be champions and heralds of the gospel. This is the strategy. This is the method. God could, in his sovereignty, come down and perform some sort of miraculous sign to to draw people to himself. But his word has made it clear the task of evangelizing the nations rests on the church. We are to go forth and preach Christ to the nations. This happens through people like you and I, through Christ's church. Something so important that we come to understand here in the text is that the task of the church in our day does not end when the people in this room are dead and gone. I've mentioned this before in different contexts in church life, but at the end of Joshua's days, 
Uh, he, he comes before the people of God, and Joshua is the one who, uh, who comes after Moses there to lead the nation of Israel across the Jordan River and to take the promised land. And there at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua comes to the people and he famously says to them, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people there, Joshua's generation, they affirm this and they say, We too want to be about these things. And so the book of Joshua ends. We come then to the book of Judges, and it tells us that Joshua's generation loved and served the Lord all of their days. But right after that in Judges, it tells us then came the next generation, and they neither knew the name of the Lord or the works that he had done. And, and I have said several times before you as your pastor, how is it you can go from a generation who loves and serves the Lord to a generation, the next generation, who did not know the name of the Lord or the works that he had done. Although Joshua's generation loved and served the Lord, they failed to heed the mandate that's there in Deuteronomy 6 to teach diligently the things of God to the coming generations. We have an entire generation that does things that are abominable before the Lord there in Judges because they didn't know the name of the Lord or the works that he had The work that we do as the church in our day has implications on the coming generations. We have a responsibility as families, as the church, to disciple the coming generations. And so whether you're a parent this morning, or a grandparent, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a single adult, how are we actively and intentionally entrusting the promises of God to the coming generations. I think of the confines of the home, where the role of discipleship primarily is to happen from the parents, discipling their children. And hopefully you've heard me preach enough to know what I think that simply looks like in the home. It simply looks like family worship, reading the word together, praying together, and singing together as best as you can as a family each and every day. And that's it. Matthew Henry, the, the Puritan, said, families that read the word together do well. Families that read the word and pray together do better, but families who read, pray, and sing together do best. The great American preacher Jonathan Edwards said every family throughout the week should be like a little church, a little house of worship. Mom and dad, discipleship in your home does not have to be complicated. There doesn't have to be a curriculum or a strategy or a method other than to simply as best as you can every day to open the word of God as a family and read it together. To pray together and to sing together. And I promise you, mom and dad, if you do those things you are doing well at discipling the coming generation. I think about the confines of our church and the ministries that we have in our church to reach the coming generations, the children and the youth in our church, and the opportunities that we have as a church to disciple our children and our youth, whether it's in Sunday school on Sunday morning or Sunday night with our youth or Wednesday night in teen kids or vacation Bible school, whatever it might be, we have a responsibility, church, to disciple the children and the youth of this church. As the parents do that primarily, we come alongside them and help them in that endeavor. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something, and, and, and I, I don't want to offend in saying this. I'm not trying to offend or 
or, or point a finger of blame. This is just an observation that I have, have made and heard, not necessarily in this particular church, but in the church life at large. I hear this a lot in our day. And I think it has a little bit to do with the sign of the times and maybe the individualistic society we live in. But oftentimes you'll hear people in church life who are, who are, are married and their kids are grown and out of the house when they're presented with an opportunity to teach children in the church will say something along the lines of, well, I, I, I already did that. I already served my time with the kids. I'm on to better things now. Now, I understand when you get older, there are certain things that you cannot necessarily do that you did before. But when our perspective on discipling the coming generation is to serve self rather than the children, I think we need to question ourselves, is our heart in the right place? Something else that has come to mind over the last several weeks in regards to discipling and, 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 and sharing the gospel to the coming generations has to do with foster care and adoption. I have been overwhelmed uh, just in the last week over the statistics of the orphan crisis here in San Antonio, just Bear County. I, I won't bore you with statistics this morning, but San Antonio has one of the most needy orphan uh, populations in all of America. And what a tremendous opportunity we have as the church to intervene on behalf of the vulnerable children in our city who have been in this endless cycle of generational abuse and neglect to intervene, to step in, and to pull them out and redeem and restore children so that coming generations may know that Yahweh is the one true living God. And so maybe this morning, God is calling you as a family to consider foster care or adoption so that we might see children and the coming generations come to know this great truth that God saves. And he's done so through the blood of Christ on the cross. Psalm 78 verses 2 through 4 say this, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Church, may that be said of us in our homes and as a church that we would seek to share the glorious deeds that the Lord has done on behalf of his people to generations after generation. And we do this resting in this one simple truth that God's covenant promises will go on after our death. We see here in the final verses, verses 7 through 11, when faithful servants of God die, other faithful servants tape up the task. We're reminded this a couple weeks ago in the death of Sarah, or Sarah, that death is coming. Death is imminent. Good people, godly people, Christ people die each and every day. And yet this should not cause us to fear what the future may hold or to fear death itself. Because again, we do not mourn like the pagans do. We are sorrowful at the face of death, but always rejoicing because of the hope that we have in heaven. And at the, at the moment of death, we rest in this, that God's program of redemption will go on generation after generation. 
Psalm 100 verse 5 says this, The Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 102 verse 18, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Luke chapter 1 verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We see this here in the death of Abraham. You see there in verse 7, in the first part of verse 8, the standard death announcement that we've come to know here in the pages of Genesis. It says there, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last. Again, this is how the death announcement is for most of the people that we find who die here in the book of Genesis. But there's more information that is given about Abraham, and rightfully so because of who he is. It goes on to say there in verse 8, he died in a good old age. I hope this sounds familiar to you. This is what God said to him back in chapter 15, verse 15, where in the vision in the night, God said to Abraham, As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Here again, we see God fulfilling the promises that he has made to Abraham throughout this story. And finally, it tells us there at the end of verse 8, he was gathered to his people. I think the writer has in view here that Abraham went to be with those who had died and gone before him. Those who were justified by faith. As he was. And then, shockingly, in verse 9, his two estranged sons come together to bury their father. Isaac and Ishmael, they come to bury their father. And where do they bury him in? The cave that Abraham went to such great lengths to secure In light of the promise, this cave that he went and purchased, the first portion of the land of the promised land that he buys is this place to bury the dead, showing that he trusts in this covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And then finally, there in verse 11, we're told that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. One commentator said of, of verse 11, he said, death seems to remain the most sobering element in the human struggle for the blessing of God. But the work of God to bless the world continues from generation to generation as the report about Isaac indicates. And so at the death of Sarah, we talked about how there is the promise of life beyond the grave for those who die. But here in, the, in light of the death of Abraham, we are reminded that the promises of God will continue to the generations to come. When we, we are dead and gone and we leave this world behind, that God will continue to be faithful to his people. Don't miss this this morning. The God of Abraham is the God of Isaac and is the God of Jacob, is the God of David, is the God of John the Baptist, is the God of Paul, and is the God of you this morning by grace through faith alone in Christ. And Christ will build his kingdom. He will build his church. And one day people from every tribe and nation and every generation to ever walk on the face of this earth will gather around the throne of God to worship him forever. And so in the midst of this crazy world and when secular people say say things like, how can you bring children into this world? We do not live in fear, church. We rest in the hope and the promises that we have set for us in heaven, knowing full well when we die and leave this earth, Christ will have his way among the generations to come. Know this. Rest in this today. 
Christ's kingdom will come. May we tell that to the generations to come. So as we close this morning, and as we started the year in Genesis, we, we started Genesis chapter 1 on January 8th. And the only reason we started on January 8th was because January 1st was the first Sunday of January, and I wasn't quite prepared to get to Genesis just yet, so we put it off a week. But we've been in Genesis since the beginning of the year. And as we close our time in Genesis for this year, looking forward in anticipation to the coming year where we will come back to this glorious book, I want you to consider for a moment as we close, where have you come from since January 8th of this year? Some of you have experienced tremendous blessing and success in job, new job opportunities, graduation from college, the birth of, of children, the birth of grandchildren. Some of you since January 8th have faced job loss and sickness and hardships and trials and, and great suffering. I think all of us would agree that there have been points over the last 10 months where we have been unfaithful to our Lord just as Abraham was. But there's also been seasons where we've been faithful to our Lord as Abraham was. But in the midst of the last 10 months we can be assured of this one thing. God has been faithful. And his steadfast love will endure forever. And so with the prospect of the rest of this year and the coming days of our lives before us, what changes do you need to make today in view of the things that we considered here in Genesis 25 this morning? In view of the prospect of death, in view of the prospect of eternity, what needs to change in your life today as you look to the coming of the end of your days we are like dust we are we are passing away what needs to change in your life today for some of you today you need to respond in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because apart from Christ the death that is set before you now is an eternity in hell but the glorious news of the gospel that we have sung about this morning and observed in baptism is this, that Christ came once and for all and he conquered sin and death by dying on the cross. His blood was spilt for our sins. And he did not stay dead, but he proved that he conquered sin and death by rising victoriously from the grave. And if you believe in him today and turn from your sins and repent from your sins, you will be saved. Dear friend, look to Jesus today and find eternal life. That can only be found in him. But also, what needs to change in your life today in view of the coming generations? Maybe, mom and dad, you need to be more intentional about family worship in your home, discipleship in your home. Maybe you're feeling a, a conviction to help out with the nursery, even though that's maybe not your favorite thing to do. Maybe this morning you're feeling led to, to foster or adopt. What is God telling you to do according to his word by his spirit to do in response to what we see here in the text are you living in faith church are you resting in and trusting in the steadfast love of God may that be said of us in this day that we live will you pray with me